Hey, it's Kelly, and this is Canon Conversations on Hawaii by CTL. On today's episode, we're listening in on Catherine Matayoshi and Hi'ilani Hopkins as they talk story about societal inhibitors of innovation, multi-generational cycles of change, and discussing what leadership in Hawaii and for Hawaii looks like. Catherine Matayoshi is the Senior Vice President and Chief Community Engagement Officer at HMSA. She's the former Superintendent of the state's Department of Education, where she served for seven years. Kathy is committed to local affairs, having served as Chief of Staff at the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, former Director of the State Department of Commerce and Consumer Affairs, and as Executive Director of the Hawaii Business Roundtable. We are so appreciative of her service and leadership on CTL's Board of Directors. Hi'ilani Hopkins is a proud alumnus of the CTL Fellows Program Class of 2016 and a former Unfold Mentor with CTL. She graduated with her bachelor's degree in biology with a minor in global health from Dartmouth College in 2021 and is an incoming business technology analyst at Deloitte in Boston. Hi'i shares Kathy's passion to lead Hawaii with innovation from within. In this episode, Kathy and Hi'i are talking stories at the Sandbox in Kaka'ako on Oahu. Now let's listen in as they flesh out what is stymieing change in Hawaii. I think one of the elephants in the room is that we tend to blame the current leaders for not doing anything, especially the politicians. And I was thinking about it on the way here. We put them there. And so I think the elephant in the room is that we like to grumble, but we have to act. And I don't think people talk enough about being able to speak out and not be afraid to be the voice that is different and that doesn't just go along. And I think that's an elephant in the room that's maybe partially cultural, so we're reluctant to be that voice. But it is something that if we can't figure out how to deal with it in a way that's comfortable for us, then we will not be able to lead our way out of complex conflict. So I was thinking that people understand that there are problems in Hawaii, um, like, I don't know, the housing crisis, health problems, things like that, that it kind of seems like they just complain about current leadership without actually taking action and moving that step forward in order to um, make the change that they want to see. And I was also thinking about this in context of like my generation. It seems like people use social media a lot to perhaps spread awareness of the problem. And I think that's a really good thing, but there isn't enough work being done to actually like solve the problem and rather than like just waiting for the leaders in power now i think people need to realize that solving the unique problems in hawaii will require a much more collaborative effort than what is being done now i feel like to our generation my generation has seen a lot of these problems for a long time like housing and the cost of housing was an issue has been an issue for years Mm -hmm. and so People have tried different things and a new generation comes and says, there's a housing problem. That's why people aren't moving back. And I think sometimes we say, well, 
They don't really understand the issues around zoning and permitting and financing. And instead of saying, great, come help us think in a new way, they say, well, go and learn all these things. But you know, then we're talking about learning the old things that were problems and never solved anything. So where do we begin to embrace new ideas, even if some of them maybe didn't work before? It's a different time. I think one thing that people who are currently in positions of power or who are older have to really start thinking, am I, by trying to be wise and trying not to have problems repeat themselves or solutions dead end, are we actually stopping innovation? And because the problems are not new, and the solutions haven't come. And so maybe we're not the right ones to think about them in the framework of how we've lived our lives. Yeah, I've heard someone say that change kind of comes in like a generational cycle um, where the people who once were innovators of great change were now um, kind of the barriers to change. Um, do you think that that's kind of what's happening now? It, you know, I think I think maybe so, and it might even be a multi-generational shift. So my dad was, you know, a politician way back in the 50s, 60s, 70s. And it was a time when there was huge change. You know, the Democratic Party came in. They were filled with very high ideals. Um, they really changed the way society looked. And there was a certain sense of responsibility for bringing up the next leaders and welcoming opposition in a way. And then there are those of us who benefited from that, and maybe we didn't have to be as challenged. And we were sitting on a change that had been made through the hard work of others. And now the question is, are we willing to then lose that comfort and welcome a new world that maybe we don't understand? And I think, so I think it might be two generations mm -hmm. or many generations as the changes shift and the status quo moves. Mm -hmm. I hope you guys will really take up the torch. I think the time is right. Yeah, I guess going back to what you said about how um, we as young people kind of have to make that next move. How do you think we can become inspired to do that? Because I feel like a lot of people in my generation are also kind of just like sitting passively waiting for like one hero to come and save the day, you know what I mean? And not just... Um, willing to put in that work, understanding that there's a problem, but not willing to kind of band together with their communities or others in order to like make the necessary change? That's a really good question. As I'm thinking about it, I think these kinds of meetings where you talk to other people and you make connections is one way that you begin to think about taking collective action. And I think one thing that we have all been vulnerable to is the idea that there's a silver bullet, there's a one solution that's going to solve all of our problems. If we could get the one leader who will, if President Obama could have just done this and just done that and, you know, pin so much hope in one person and realize that actually it's not one person. It's, it's going to take a collective will mm -hmm. to make the kind of change that we're talking about. And it will take a charismatic leader to, to, bring people together, but to rely on them and say, if he only did or she only did, um, is not going to get us anywhere. It's like, what did I do? Mm -hmm. And um, so I think 
when you can gather uh, as young people with lots of energy and share dreams and share challenges and work together for a solution, uh, then you'll draw strength from each other and energy from each other and you'll start to see progress. That's my goal. Mm -hmm. And that you will celebrate not the explosive win, though we've solved in a world peace, but maybe we've solved peace in one neighborhood. Mm -hmm. one, one thing at a time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and another thing I've been thinking about lately is um, my why, like why I eventually want to move home to Hawaii. And I think what you were saying about how we need to recognize like the small wins perhaps and just like what those small wins can do to like further our why, further what our goal is. I think that I really like that. After college, I knew that I wanted to work um, on the continent for a little bit just to try and learn as much as I can away from home to maybe bring some of that um, knowledge and skill set back to Hawaii. Um, and also, of course, because of the cost of living, like I will be in Boston and that's very expensive there, but I still feel like it's it can't compare to what it would be like here. Um, so my hope is that I'll work in this job for like a few years, maybe go to grad school and then just kind of slowly make my way back and then finally make my way back home. But I'm hoping like in at least 10 years that I'll be back home here. Do you think there'll be a catalyzing moment or accomplishment that will make you think, okay, or a personal, personal thing in your mm -hmm. life that makes you say, okay, I think it's time to come home. Mm -hmm. Something I've also been thinking about is that I've always wanted like to raise my children here at home. I got to be very close to my grandparents because both sets of them lived like 10 minutes away from me all the time. So they babysat while my parents were at work. Um, and then once my cousins were born, we all kind of hung out together at my grandparents' house. Um, and even now, whenever I'm home, we see each other like once a week. And I just really liked that closeness um, and that sense of family that was created because going away to school, a lot of my friends, they aren't close to their extended family because they live like all across the U.S., like some on the West Coast, some on the East Coast. Um, and some of them like may have never even met their grandparents. So I think when I start thinking about having a family, that would definitely be like an indication for me that I need to come home. Um, and then of course, graduating from Kamehameha, I see like all of the resources that they give um, students. And even now they're still like helping me through scholarships and stuff like that. So I would want like my next generation to be able to benefit from those things as well. Both women followed paths of seeking education and professional experiences on the mainland with the intent to offer their skill sets at home in Hawaii. Now they share about the value leaving home meant for them. I graduated from law school and I didn't even really want to stay there. I had had you know, four years in Minnesota, years in Minnesota and years in San Francisco. And um, you have to take the bar. So you have to think, do I really want to take the California bar? Is it something that is something that I want to do because I want to live there? Or am I really going to practice in Hawaii? And if I am, then I should just come home and take the bar. Mm -hmm. And my boyfriend, was, who is now my husband, was coming back too. But I don't think he even thought about staying in San Francisco. I think going away um, 
as I said, I definitely found like a new appreciation for being from Hawaii and just maybe even a sense of pride. Um, because a lot of people, when you say, especially on the East coast, I found they're like, Oh, you're from Hawaii. Like, Oh, I vacation there every summer or something. But it's not only like, Oh, I come from paradise, but like I've come from a place that has overcome like hardship and, um, adversity, but has also been like very successful in its own way. That's like totally unique from like other places on the mainland. While wanting to gain experiences away, can they truly lead from afar? What does it look like to be a leader if not on the ground? I think you're more able to do it now with social media and people used to doing Zoom and everything else. But I actually don't think you can be fully effective as a leader unless you can be face-to-face with someone and really connect on a personal level. And as good as these technologies can be, it's not like being together, especially in a group where you can see how people interact and you can meet people's families and you can understand their neighborhoods. And there's so much context to leading and leadership that you can't get over a computer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you can find the motivation to um, want to be a leader in Hawaii when you're away. Maybe hearing about the problems or hearing about um, certain things that you'd feel like you want to change, but it isn't until you actually come back here that you can truly start to make change. Um, Maybe you can prepare materials or something while you're away, but you can't take any true meaningful action until you're back here, I would say. You can support people. You can be a resource. You You can even help lead portions. But to me, the full range of leadership is hard to do remotely. So if we're talking about leadership generally, it's one thing. And I think if you're talking about local leadership, leadership in Hawaii, for Hawaii, then I think it takes um, a certain amount of appreciation and empathy for the history and culture of the place. Not only Native Hawaiian history and culture, but the history and culture of all the different ethnicities that have come to Hawaii. And that is something that's hard for people to wrap their head around if they haven't grown up here. But um, I, I know people who have that empathetic spirit. and They're willing to listen really deeply. And I think they, they are good or great leaders here even if they're not from here. Yeah, I think humility is a big thing that I've noticed um, in great leadership. And I think especially in Hawaii where like the culture kind of comes from a place of humility, it's really important for a leader to kind of understand that they don't have all the right answers all the time. reach out to the community for input um, and kind of just, I guess, take a more collaborative approach rather than like, oh, I'm the one leader that you all need to follow, I would say. I think that's something really different, what you just said, for Hawaii, because I think sometimes when you have people from the mainland or from other places, 
and they see someone who's very humble, sort of quiet, never talks about the great things they've done, or their history, where they went to school, and all their accomplishments, um, they don't listen so much. Mm-hmm. And there's almost a need to exert, exert yourself into these conversations. Mm-hmm. And I think that we appreciate the strength of humility, and I don't know that everyone does, and I think that's part of the Hawaii culture that you just identified. And I think it's really important for people to realize that being humble and being kind uh, and being empathetic does not mean you're weak. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like society now, the way it's all about me, you know, I did this, I did that, or really divisive, it's not recognizing those traits as something that a strong leader has. And I think we got to get back to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another thing that I was thinking about, not totally along the lines of this, but um, the tight networks that we have here can sometimes be really difficult to break into um, if you're someone that's coming from the mainland. So maybe that's why they would feel the need to kind of like tout their experience and their um, achievements. And like even me thinking of coming back home, like I haven't done many internships or like research here. So I'm kind of worried, like, how am I going to get a job here if I have no connections here? Because having connections here is kind of like the biggest thing, I would say, that I've been told um, in, like, looking for a job and moving forward in my career. That's interesting. My daughter is in law school. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people kept telling her, if you're going to practice in Hawaii, you've got to go to H law school because that's where you make all your connections and that's where... You know, you'll meet the people that you'll practice with. But she went to school here. She feels like, she said, you know, I really feel like these people, I know a lot of people from high school, from playing soccer, from doing these activities. So do I do I need to do more than that? Can't mm-hmm. I go to a law school that I really want to go to? And so she did. And I think when I think about your background, growing up here with your family and going to Kamehameha and just growing up here. Mm -hmm. I think that those connections are more than you might realize. Mm -hmm. And it's maybe part of why we always ask, where did you you grab from? Because that creates a connection across generations almost. I went to Hilo High, so I know that when people say, oh, you went to Hilo High, oh, my auntie, my uncle, my grandpa, my, you know, and somehow that that connects you. And uh, I think that's, that's part of the joy of Hawaii. Both, both education and healthcare are enormous and complex systems. And so it is really hard to move the needle. Uh, and so much beyond the education system and beyond the healthcare system impacts the outcomes for individuals. So that's one of the things that's hard about that change is you have to, as a leader in either of those areas, think beyond the thing that is right in front of you. So what I mean by that is in education, for example, you look at a student and you think, I'm going to teach them math. Here's a textbook. Here's what we need to teach. But that child is living a life in a context of their family and their neighborhood, how much support they have, what are the issues that are coming up in their family, uh, how much education their parents had can impact 
um, whether they went to preschool, all of these things that are beyond what is in front of you in the classroom. So you can get really bogged down by, by thinking about all of these things that are not in your control. And so both of those systems are very, very hard to think of one thing that would make a difference. I do think that it's the both of them have been areas where we have relied on professionals and have done a little bit of just get a good teacher, get a good doctor. And we haven't taken responsibility for our own education or for our own health. And so a consumer movement, if you will, where people actually said, I want to know and I want to understand what is happening might begin to change the paradigm of these big systems by injecting a new voice, uh, the voice of the patient or the patient's family or the student, student's family, much more strongly in the system. Yeah, something that um, I did while I was in college that really kind of piqued my interest in healthcare was I worked for the Hospital Center for Shared Decision Making. And the goal of that center was to basically make the provider and patient relationship a lot more interactive rather than just having the provider say, oh, you need to take this medicine, you're getting this treatment, and then the patient just sitting back and saying, okay. Um, and as part of that volunteer program that I did, I kind of was able to open up those conversations or facilitate those types of conversations that allowed the patient to have more agency and more say in um, what was being prescribed or what was being um, like viewed as the best course of action for them, um, especially since a lot of the patients that worked with the center, they were going through um, like recent cancer diagnoses or uh, recent surgeries, recent pretty serious injuries. Um, and a lot of the time it's not really quite easy, um, to like decide what you want to put up with and like what you would want, um, to go into your body. So I think that was really interesting for me to see because like the traditional way that I would think of healthcare is kind of just like you listen to the doctor because the doctor has all this education and stuff. Um, but I really liked how they were trying to incorporate the patient's voice as well. And I think that that involves really strengthening the patient's confidence that what they feel, what they think, what they value is something they need to communicate to the doctors. The doctor is not going to read their mind and know. And I think a lot of people, like the people you just talked about, are just saying, well, you know, you know, he's got the MD, he's all this experience, he's so smart. Um, but that very, very smart person doesn't know what you think and feel and what you value. Mm -hmm. yeah, I think my generation is not big on self-reflection. Mm -hmm. And that word actually was relatively new to me until I joined the Department of Education and educator are all about reflecting on their practice. Mm -hmm. And it was so good to talk to people very openly about what you think about yourself. I don't think that's a natural thing for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. 
And one of the things is other people see and talk to me about, you know, what they think I value, which is kind of funny just to think about that that way. But I think they saw things that I didn't see. And I was able to hear that. And one of them said to me, whatever you do, you know, it's got to be mission driven. Otherwise, you're just not going to be happy. And I thought about it because I had done a lot of things, maybe fortuitously, but maybe subconsciously choosing a path. Mm -hmm. And in part because my family is very public service oriented. So it's just part of what we think and how we, how we are. But to intentionally say, I want to do this because that mission speaks to me and I can dedicate myself to it was something that came out of someone else's reflection and then me thinking about what they said. Mm -hmm. And that's been important because, you know, the opportunities are there and then you get drawn. Like, this pays more money. This gives me more time with my family. You know, this is an interesting thing with nice people. Is it the kind of mission, and it's a good mission, is it a mission that would drive me? And that's the next part of that reflection. Mm -hmm. How do I then internalize that? And how do I actually act on it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I started thinking about this question because I recently had a conversation with one of my classmates about how in once COVID happened, um, a lot of our classes were making us write uh, more journals, like more um, formal types of self-reflection just on how COVID was affecting us um, and things like that. And initially we were saying it was pretty hard for us because we hadn't done that in a while. Like throughout high school, you're not really asked to do journals or things like that. But um, especially in a time of COVID, being able to reflect on how your life is and how um, your values are keeping you going was really helpful for me, I think. And um, along the lines of what you said about how you kind of have to reflect on your mission and how those, like that mission can connect to your values um, is something that I've been thinking about a lot lately as well. It's interesting, There's, I just read an article that everyone's concerned that COVID is causing young people to be isolated and depressed and really concerned about people's social emotional health. But this article kind of took a contrary view and said, yes, those are issues, but it's also allowed young people time to pause in their activity and their focus on moving forward with their lives and rushing into their next phase of their life. It's forced everyone to stop and say, what do I really want to do? Because now I have some time to sit and really think about what I value. And to have that, if you view it as a gift of time and an opportunity to really reflect, it could be so valuable in how you want to live the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. I thought it was really cool. You know, you know there's, all, there's always another side to something that's not good. Mm -hmm. And we have to find it and then focus on it mm -hmm. so that we can get stronger from it mm -hmm. and not have it just take away. It has to add to who we are. Yeah, I think I definitely felt part of that experience too. Just, 
because I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, and then in November, like right after I started my senior year, I committed to a job in Boston. And since then, I've kind of have a, had a lot of time to think about that. And now I'm realizing maybe that was a bit of a hasty decision um, just in my like sense of urgency to want to get a job. I may have committed too early. Um, perhaps Boston is it really where I want to be. But also now I'm thinking this isn't like a forever thing, so I can just stick it out um, for a few years. And my end goal of moving home and um, that kind of thing is kind of what will keep me going. It's never a mistake. It's, uh, I think it might be harder. It might not give you exactly what you were looking for. But I think you have this attitude about learning and reflection that will make that experience something that's gonna be valuable to you you'll make that before we end this episode we'll close with a special outtake called p.s i love you where each of our guests reads a love letter they've written to hawaii we appreciate that our guests get candid on our show and want to leave you with a reminder that people can respectfully disagree with each other and see problems facing Hawaii while still desiring to work together because they hold a deep love for this place they call home. Dear Hawaii, you carry the history of extreme success, hardship, and revitalization on your back. And to me, you are one of the most distinctive places on earth. Your stories of excellent leadership, harmony, and innovation contrast those of displacement, oppression, and unrest. But to us, your people, through the good and the bad, you are home. You have instilled a strong sense of place in me and always ground me in my values. I didn't realize how lucky I was to grow up amongst your majestic Ko'olau mountains, warm waters, and expansive beaches until I left you just over four years ago. Since then, my goal of coming back to you and helping my community has not changed, but I'm unable to move back just yet. However, I know no matter how long I stay away and no matter how far away I go, you will be here with open arms, willing to welcome me back when I'm ready. From my love for you, I've developed a sense of pride, reciprocity, and true belonging. Mahalo Hawaii. You've been here every step of the way. Aloha, hi'ilani. Dear Hawaii, oh, so many years ago, I went away to college and law school. The opportunities to live on the mainland, much higher pay, cheaper housing, the exciting life in a big city, even back then were not draws that made me think more than in passing about stay. Nor was it the draw of the beauty of the beaches and the ocean and the mountains or even the food that brought me home. I think that it was the warm comfort of being part of a community that is grounded and connected, sometimes through multiple generations, to this place. I remember laughing about my mom meeting someone for the first time and immediately making connections to that person's auntie or cousin or to where they grew up and the families there. People care about each other, not just for what they do, but their status. They care about how we are connected, the shared memories and history that brings each of us to care for each other, whether or not we have met before. It's the kindness and the welcome because we are all part of this place and collectively we make Hawaii what it is. I am afraid that we are losing that sense of the fabric of our community that brings us together. And I pledge to work to preserve what makes that fabric so very special. Mahalo, Kathy. Thank you to our guests, Kathy Matoyoshi and Hi'ilani Hopkins, 
for getting personal and candidly sharing their thoughts on Hawaii in today's episode. For you, our listeners, how do you practice introspection? How will you take leadership action in your community? Follow along with us as we release content throughout this month on our social media as we discuss solutions to stymieing innovation and fostering the next generation of leaders from within Hawaii. Candid Conversations on Hawaii podcast is made by the Center for Tomorrow's Leaders. Our show is produced by Jen Mae Pastores, Sheena Choi, and Kelly Sunabe, with music by CTO alumni Giorgio Tran and Pono K. Bailey. Check us out at ctlhawaii.org or follow us on Instagram at ctlhawaii. And be sure to read our student-written Raise Your Hand articles in the Star Advertiser. We'll see you at the next conversation. Aloha!